welcome to our first series of Mastermind with me, Jason Bryan. Five contenders will take up the challenge in this series, all hoping to claim the title of Industry Mastermind and win the coveted Rocco Mastermind Award. To do that, they must answer nine unknown questions on three specialist subjects they choose, providing a pretty eclectic mix of insights for our industry. So let's get on with it and have today's contender. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here with Dean Bubbly, who is the Director of Disruptive Analysis. Hi, Dean. Hi there. Let's... Thanks for inviting me on. Oh, you're very welcome. Just to describe a bit about you that we know, you are a futurist and an analyst, a keynote speaker and consultant on telecoms, mobile and technology, as well as an external advisor. Anything else that you would add to this list of acclaims? Well, I suspect various people would probably also call me a curmudgeon or something slightly ruder, given <laughs> I do have a reputation for, let's just say, being critical or sceptical about certain things. Ah, well, we all need sceptics, and I think the more mature listeners to this podcast will appreciate your scepticism very much, so uh, I think that's fine. So... You are contender to the Mastermind Challenge, and we have eight categories. I'm going to list the categories now, which are blockchain, IoT, roaming, 5G messaging, eSIM, the chat apps, and mystery category. And you've chosen blockchain, 5G, and mystery as your categories. So, are you ready? Yes, I am ready. <laughs> okay, now... Some of these might not be so tough questions for you as they've been for others, but let's have a try. We'll start with blockchain. Okay. First question is, how is blockchain useful, would you say, to mobile network operators and what they offer and why? Well, blockchain has multiple possible touch points with mobile operators and others in the telecoms industry, either as a private chain where it's essentially going to be used as a decentralized or distributed database between a consortium or a closed group, or potentially as a public blockchain underpinned by uh, some sort of token or cryptocurrency. Let's focus on the private chains. The most promising use cases I'm seeing at the moment are around reconciliation of billing between multiple providers, if you like a single source of truth. There's some interesting things that are going on in the regulatory space. So the Indian uh, telecom regulator has recently suggested using blockchain for anti-spam and do not call mechanisms and I've seen Deutsche Telekom looking to use it for a multi-operator registry of uh, stolen devices to block access to or there's a, a number of other things that could be for micropayments for content for managed services in IOT of all sorts of different uh, things to do with IOT um, it could be around um, maintaining integrity of IoT data or cre even creating a marketplace for data for uh, sensors or something else. There's a lot of possibilities, but it's still very early days. I'm a little bit skeptical about some of the things I see on the public chain side and 
where you have uh, tokenized use of people are trying to sort of uh, tokenize their spare quota of voice calls or SMS or data or create marketplaces for temporary roaming plans using some new form of tokens and coins. It's possible, but I think that there's, there's some practical issues around that. Although I am working with a, a company that's doing um, some clever stuff with Wi-Fi and multi-radio mesh networks. Okay, brilliant. Clear that, I guess, on the financial clearing side, if I think from a roaming perspective, this is something that could bring a lot of transparency and help operators with settlement. Yeah, absolutely. Just to follow on on that, yeah, the potential is rather than each operator running their own database and then trying to reconcile them and have potential costs in dispute management. If you can essentially have a sort of a trusted but decentralized single ledger, it should, at least in theory, reduce some of that friction. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks for your insights, Dean. Second question is a little bit sketchy. Let's say that reports from IBM and the financial services sector are projecting that blockchain will drive innovation in services, bringing more transparency and security. But isn't it also true that blockchain is subject to human error? Or I understood that if more than 50% of the computers acting as nodes have bad information, this could also mean that the elements in the blockchain are no good. Right. The way I would say is to think about or replacing the term blockchain in that sentence with decentralized database, which is sort of underselling blockchain a bit, but is a good way of, of pointing it out. And certainly, just as with other database technologies, there is, there is a possibility for bug, flaws in security. Although obviously, because it's a, a different architecture, the attack surface is slightly different. And one of those attack surfaces is what you refer to as a 51% attack, where if you have a public chain and you control a majority of the nodes on that network, sometimes it's called miners, depending on the, the technology used, then you potentially can unilaterally decide to rewrite the underlying software and the code. In fact, that's happened a few times for public chains. It's less of an issue for the sort of private or consortium trains where there's likely to be a measure of trust between the participants anyway. And also in the past, you've probably had one organization controlling the centralized database anyway, because everyone's had to trust their code is right. Where there is a thing, another set of risks is in what are called smart contracts. Some blockchain platforms allow essentially computational law or conditional contracts. You know, it could be for, for Internet of Things, you could say, if this shipment has been maintained, of food has been maintained at the right temperature throughout its journey, then trigger the payout. But if the sensors say that it has got above that temperature range, then don't pay. And that could be enshrined in software. And the, the issue there is that's great as long as someone is able to check the software, if you like, legal code which obviously needs people who are expert in both blockchain software and the appropriate contract law, which is not a trivial problem, particularly for smaller providers. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks for this insight as well. Very interesting. Third question sure. on blockchain. 
As with industry, blockchain will have to have some industry standards and norms implemented. Who do you think will drive the creation of these standards and, more importantly, their enforcement? That's a really interesting question. And I think that you'll see certain things being standardized, but you will also see a plethora of proprietary or open source solutions as well. So a number of organizations are looking at standards at different parts of the sort of like blockchain stack, or they're trying to define what distributed ledgers are and perhaps how they interoperate, which is a really important one because we're likely to be in a world where people have multiple blockchains for multiple things, just as they do with databases today. I know the ITU is doing some work on this, and I think that there's also sort of the, some of the international uh, standards, not just in telecoms, but global standards organizations as well. So there's certain varying various UN agencies which are looking at this. It wouldn't surprise me if we see within the telecom sector something from TM Forum on the billing side. I know they've, they've been looking at this particularly on for IoT. There will be quite a lot of this coming from the Linux Foundation that is working on things like uh, Hyperledger and open source, a, a family of open source blockchain solutions where there's quite a lot of large companies already involved in that. There's the Industrial Internet Consortium, which is doing things on which where blockchain touches with things like uh, future manufacturing plants for security and credentialing purposes. And then perhaps we'll see GSMA and 3GPP as well. Well, I know are looking at this, but I don't know if they have any specific standard. What you might find is that they use blockchain within something else rather than just blockchain per se. Now, the issue is that it goes across so many different industries. It's not obvious to me that standardizing a telecom blockchain makes a huge amount of sense rather than doing it you know, for something which spans manufacturing and finance and healthcare and so on, or could do at least. Very good. Certainly something we're all excited to know more about. So these insights are really helpful, Dean. Thank you. Sure. So to 5G, how different would you say 5G networks are from those uh, providing 4G services? Is there a relationship between 5G and Wi-Fi? There's a couple of different things there. Yeah. How different from 5G, how from 4G is 5G? Well, I think one of the first things to say is that almost all 5G networks will have to operate as hybrids with 4G for many years because it's going to take a very long time to get well, not just ubiquitous but even near ubiquitous uh, 5G coverage. There's a few reasons for this. One is that to start with most 5G early networks are likely to be in frequency bands which have very high speeds but very low ranges and, and either they're often referred to as mid-band and people are talking about 3.5 gigahertz or 4.5 in places like Japan. Or they're ultra-high uh, frequencies, sometimes called millimeter wave. And, and Verizon in the US and some of the Korean operators, for example, are working on 28 gigahertz. Now, that has very, very different characteristics to what we're used to with traditional 4G or 3G network. The most notable of those is how they work in terms of buildings. 
there will be very poor propagation from cell towers, 5G cell towers, to the inside of buildings, especially where you have more than one wall in the way, which means that we will probably find that our phones and other devices, either out in areas where the economics of upgrades are tenuous, or indoors, your phone will drop back to 4G. So where you have 5G, it should perform very well and should be very efficient. Now, there's a few caveats here. First off is that some operators will put 5G in frequency bands which have better indoor coverage or better range in rural areas, such as T-Mobile in the US is using uh, 600 megahertz. But I think that's not necessarily going to be the first stage over the next few years. I suspect when we get to sort of 2023, most operators will have a sufficient blend to give good coverage in a good percentage of places. There's also a separate set of issues around the core networks that are used behind 5G. And there's a distinction between what's called standalone and non-standalone networks. In short, non-standalone companies like to come first, and that essentially means you can reuse the 4G core network for 5G as well, whereas the standalone comes later and that will start bringing in new capabilities like the, the much talked about network slicing you know, capabilities that are 5G specific. So from a network point of view, there will be quite a lot of differences. And then also we'll have sort of maturity, perhaps pricing changes, but um, those to some extent will be enabled by 5G rather than sort of built into the technology itself. The other thing that's interesting here is whether the economics of 5G support four operators in some countries or whether it's essentially catalyzing consolidation. Arguably, you could say that the Sprint and T-Mobile revised merger in the US comes down to how much money will need to be invested in 5G by any one operator and that trying to do this individually Sprint or Timo might struggle. So you could say that, that 5G might actually reform the macro landscape of the industry more than uh, people expected. The other things to mention are around future support of Internet of Things. The usual hype of 5G is that it's going to be enabling lots of uh, what I call ultra-reliable, low-latency connections. And I have to say, that's great in theory, and I'm sure we'll see lots of clever demos and some early implementations in things like uh, the Olympics or other sports tournaments. Um, but I think when people talk about using 5G for, I don't know, surgical robots or uh, a few other fanciful ideas, I think that's uh, still in the realm of, uh, of sci-fi uh, when it comes to reality. <laughs> Apart from anything else, there's few operators that probably want to take on the liability risk of a 5G robot not of a, you know, operating in a hospital theatre. Not least to mention that usually, coming back to my first point, operating theatres are usually indoors rather than outdoors. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the question is how you actually manage to connect that robot anyway. You mentioned 5G and Wi-Fi. Yes. To my mind, there is a very narrow overlap on a Venn, di a Venn diagram between 5G and Wi-Fi, just as there has been between 4G and Wi-Fi. You will find some carrier Wi-Fi that you know, where, you, where a telecom operator has deployed its Wi-Fi network. 
either in public spaces or perhaps linked to their home broadband or managed service for businesses, where it integrates and it operates as a continuum. So you might have a device which uses 5G outdoors and, and has the, the carrier managed Wi-Fi indoors. The problem is, with that vision, is the vast bulk, and I'm thinking probably more than 90%, possibly more than 99% of Wi-Fi, is not administered by mobile operators. It's either in people's homes, perhaps integrated with their home broadband, which may well come from a separate service provider, it's in their office, I'm doing this call over the Wi-Fi in a hotel in Los Angeles at the moment. I have no idea who provides either the network uh, within the hotel, nor the fiber that it connects it to the rest of the world, or multiple fibers perhaps. And and it's it's not integrated with my phone because it goes via the, the hotel's guest software to determine permissions and net passwords. So I think that that will continue and you will find some use cases where a carrier maybe does a deal with a metropolitan authority. There are some markets like India where there's not been as much fixed broadband in the past, so there's perhaps less use of uh, privately run Wi-Fi today. And that that's enabled the service providers to have a greater role than you might get in other markets where you know, private Wi-Fi historically particularly say in offices, evolved from the wired Ethernet local area network that people you plug your printer and your desktop phones and PCs into. So some markets might have a slightly different heritage or lack of heritage for private Wi-Fi. But overall, I still sort of quite heavily dispute this idea that 5G is going to be some Borg assimilates Wi-Fi and satellite and all these other things. It can, doesn't necessarily mean it will good answer thank you so much i think i'm going to take that those two questions i asked you because they are different as two questions and um just okay. ask you one more on 5g because i think you give us a very thorough answer there so imagine that you're on a mobile network operator now and you don't have lte yet you don't have 4g network deployment is actually coming up there is of course cases they're rarer these days should you wait for 5G to come along or should you start already on the 4G? Um, I would say go for the 4G. And I also suspect that pretty much every 5G radio solution will probably come with a, a multi-radio capability anyway. You know, just as most 4G deployments now often come with a refresh of 2G and 3G. But if I'm thinking about the sort of places which don't have 4G today, and if I'm supposed to be going on vacation to one, uh, to Cape Verde Islands, which as far as I know, doesn't have a 4G network yet. And you know, ultimately, it's going to come down to the fact that those operators presumably haven't been able to create a business case for 4G in the past, either based on local residents or inbound roaming tourists and, and business travelers. And if they haven't been able to create a business case in the last nine years or 10 years for 4G. I can't see there suddenly being some magical new business case for 5G where either the costs are much lower or the revenues are much higher. Yeah, not to mention the fact that they probably won't have the skilled engineers to be able to sort of deploy, test, manage, operate. And they'll probably be expensive to get in the next couple of years. I'm pretty skeptical about the idea of a sort of a leapfrog strategy. 
Yeah, especially as for the next probably three to four years, we're still going to be in what I'll call artisanal 5G networks, where people craft them very carefully. There's probably going to be an excess of monitoring and management, you know, the occasional glitches that need to be fixed. And if you're in that much of a precarious position financially that you haven't done LTE to date, I suspect you probably don't want to be the guinea pig on 5G. Plus also, it's not obvious that your customers, particularly domestic ones, are going to be able to afford 5G devices anytime soon. Yeah, it seems like in those kind of locations, being them very touristic, probably it's a case of the Wi-Fi being very dominant and in every place you want to go. So it's very tough for mobile network operators, I would say. Yeah, I mean, what you might find is, yeah, if it's um, a particular country where the tourists are, or business travelers, NGOs, or even the local sort of business leaders are concentrated in one particular city center or resort, you might find a localized 5G network there, either for test purposes or for headline grabbing purposes. So, yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean commitment to complete nationwide rollout. And I think that's one of the things we'd like to see more in 5G is, is sort of islands of 5G in a sea of 4G or 3G, where it does become more possible to justify. And it might be because of Internet of Things as well as um, roamers. So you might find the certain areas which are heavy users of I don't know, industrial machinery or a smart city or something like that, which doesn't perhaps initially at least apply to the rest of the country. Very good. Thank you, Dean. So on to our last three questions, and they're in the category mystery, okay? To see what's in the grab bag. Yeah, exactly. And they're all on different topics, so it's going to be interesting. But there's a link to the last question in the first question of this category. So with Wi-Fi networks being potentially cheaper to deploy without the need to buy expensive licenses and allowing service on all kinds of devices, why are MNOs not adopting Wi-Fi as their standard means of networking? Uh, range is the obvious, range and power. Wi-Fi, well, two things, range and power and mobility. Wi-Fi is fine for something like a hotel or a restaurant or an airport um, with some caveats, but it's not much use if you're in a car or you know, some other form of or a train. Or you might use it within the train, but you certainly wouldn't if you're driving, if you have a train going down a track at 200 kilometers an hour, you're not going to have it going past a, a Wi-Fi access point every millisecond or, or every tenth of a second, probably, and trying to roam from one onto the other. So mobility doesn't work. The power levels of Wi-Fi mean the range is constrained. There is often either congestion or RF interference because you can't plan Wi-Fi and uh, yeah, it's, in many cases it's still sufficient for data connectivity. But if you look in, in a busy city at how many Wi-Fi access points are visible, there's a lot of complexity in how you manage that environment from a radio point of view. That's not very reliable. It's also extremely difficult to persuade people to pay for using Wi-Fi-based networks, partly because of that uh, perceived lack of quality, but also because you know, anywhere that you try to charge Wi-Fi, you'll have someone else giving it away for free, almost by the, almost guaranteed. 
The other thing is whether or not all of your users have devices that can support voice calls and text messaging on Wi-Fi. Many new phones do, although sometimes people switch it off, the capability for Wi-Fi calling. Older devices may well not support it. So the general, my general view is that we will need to have cellular and Wi-Fi in most cases. Actually, one last use case, my understanding is it's either very difficult or in some cases impossible to run certain things on Wi-Fi. So um, some of the security compliance rules around things like credit card readers are much harder with Wi-Fi than they are with if you have a credit card reader with a cellular radio. It's not impossible, but I must admit the security, some of the security aspects are a little outside my normal beat. So I'll let people do their own research on the exact legal status. No, that's very interesting. And yeah, I think a lot of people just expect that they're very similar when you think about next generation Wi-Fi hotspots and all this kind of thing. But I think you've highlighted some good points there. Yeah, as it happens, the next generation of Wi-Fi called uh, 802.11.ax is going to actually be using more cellular-like technologies and should be better in dense areas and you know, should manage the radio environment better in things like, I don't know, sports stadiums or something like that where you've got a high density of users. But that's only just coming onto the market now. And again, what I expect to see is, is that for places like sports stadiums or airports, people will pretty much use, use every piece of spectrum and every radio technology available to maximise the density of capacity. Perfect. Thank you. Now on to a completely different topic. And it's mm-hmm. on the chat apps or the OTTs, as yep. you as you like to call them. <laughs> <laughs> the OTTs are undoubtedly gaining influence globally. If you were to put them all in a boxing ring and to ask them to fight it out, which three would be left standing and why? Well, I suppose it depends on how you define them. And also whether it is specifically from the point of view of the chat applications or whether it is to do with the whole technology stack. And I think that for me, this is the thing which is just sort of looking at something like WhatsApp and saying it's a chat app. Well, that rather overlooks the fact that Facebook has global data centers and submarine cables. It's got its own chip technology. It's developing its own algorithms for AI and so on. A lot of it depends on whether it's just that sort of installable app on the phone you're talking about or every, all of that other stuff that's behind it. And that's where it gets quite tricky. And, and trying to pick three standing is a, an interesting one. Not least, I have to say, I don't know as much about the Chinese uh, companies uh, Tencent and Baidu and Alibaba as I do about others. In terms of messaging, I would say globally just in terms of the sort of what messaging apps the users use i think it probably comes down to whatsapp wechat and frankly good old sms possible you could include either android or apple push notifications in there if you want to call that messaging so i would say that those are the ones with the biggest headline numbers of users the most ubiquity the most sort of acceptance amongst both consumers and application to person use. And then you'll find a whole set of others that are a niche either within particular communities or particular geographies. So obviously iMessage for Apple users, Line in markets like Japan and Thailand. You've got Facebook as a messenger as well as WhatsApp, which obviously is sort of quasi-integrated but tend to be used for different things. 
and then you have you know, Snapchat for teenagers and so on. I think that part of the market where there are certain niches, that's more susceptible to disruptions because uh, I think that uh, people always want the newest, coolest one or maybe everyone's using Telegram today for secure messaging, but there's a, maybe in the future there's a hack or there's, there's some sort of doubts about end-to-end -end decryption and everyone moves to Signal or whatever the newest. So I think that those niches are more easy to disrupt than the three main ones. Okay. And one footnote, as you probably know, I have been a critic for, for 10 years of the, the RCS standard, uh, and I continue to believe <laughs> it is a complete waste of time and uh, waste of money and resources. That footnote is very interesting. Thank you very much for that. I'm sure our listeners will be interested to know more about that. We should have you as part of one of our RCS panels that we're planning, so I'll be in touch. Oh, <laughs> Final question. It's very simple. Which do you think of the three best mobile network operators in the world? And why? Not best in one specific area, but across the board in general. That's a really tough one. That's yes. a really, really tough one. I meet quite a lot, but they all have sort of very different characteristics. Um, all right, I'll pick an SKT from South Korea, just in terms of the sort of the innovation that it does. I mean, it's obviously at the forefront of things like 5G. You know, they have really good you know, physical network, and they're also quite advanced on use of things like open source technology. And they're also very forward thinking about things like vertical industries. And um, they tend to have a, a high ARPU and I'm generally impressed. So that's, that's to some extent the easy one. I suppose I should probably say NTT Docomo for largely the same reasons, but also because of its commitment to you know, actually spending money on R&D. And I think to, to, to my money that a lot of the innovation in the telecoms industry, you know, a lot of it gets abdicated and pushed down to the vendors of equipment and software. But actually, I think if the operators want to retain their strategic role in future, they need to do more in-house research and development. They need to come up with good ideas, take risks, and make investments, and employ people who understand the networks and software, as well as uh, customer behavior, and uh, obviously the pricing and software stack as well. So I'll, all right, I'll go with NTT Docomo. And then the third one, I'm probably going to say Verizon. And uh, that's a difficult one. I mean, you could make an argument for any of the large European operators or in the US sort of T-Mobile, given what it's done with pricing or, or AT&T. But I think Verizon, I think, has more of a focus on the network than most operators to make sure that things like the coverage are, are sort of it's pushing very hard on 5G and actually doing some really interesting stuff with uh, fixed wireless as well as mobile. It's uh, fairly loyal, but certainly profitable customers. And it probably doesn't have as many distractions around international operations as some of the big European groups, which sometimes end up being more of a management exercise in herding cats because all the opcos want to do different things. And I think the ability to sort of yeah, stick to one main market, you could say the same about, say, China Mobile or a couple of others as well, is probably an advantage. So I think I'll go with Verizon Wireless on that. Brilliant. 
Thank you very much, Dean. I feel like I could ask you about 10 more questions because you're so knowledgeable and it's really a pleasure to listen to you. But our time's up and uh, you've completed your challenge. We thank you very much for your time and for your insights. It's very interesting. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. No, it would have been interesting to sort of speak on, I don't know, a few others on eSIM yeah. or yeah, IoT or anything else, but maybe another time. But uh, I look forward to it. And thanks very much for inviting me on, Jason. You're very welcome. Wish you a good time in Los Angeles and uh, some nice weather and uh, hope it goes well. Good. Safe travel. Great. Thank you. If you like this Mastermind Challenger, go onto LinkedIn and like the post and tell them what you think in the comments. The winner is the participant with the most likes on LinkedIn. Likes will be calculated two weeks after publication of their podcast. This has been the Mastermind Challenge. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Rocker Radio.